Windsor, Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Good morning, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing your favourite books and your great reads. Looking at the books within the Jubilee Big Read. And chatting with fashion historian Amber Bouchard. Hello there, I'm Heather Adams and you're listening to Turning Pages with myself and Julian. Good morning, Julian. How are you this morning? I'm very well. Thank you, Heather. Very well indeed. Excellent. Right. Now, every week we aim to delight you all with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy, from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. And as always, we've got a fun-filled hour designed just for you. We have indeed and to celebrate the Queen's Jubilee in June. Uh, ten books have been chosen for each decade of the Queen's reign. So we'll be discussing the big Jubilee with our colleague Jeanette later. And I'll be chatting with funky fashion historian Amber Butchard, who's talking about her latest book, The Fashion Chronicles, Style Stories of History's Best Dressed, which is the basis of her talk during the Cookham Festival this, uh, at the moment. And to start the show, we've been scouring the papers, as usual, to spot any interesting uh, book news for you and winkle them out. So let's start with a quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news this past week. So, Julian, did you see that a coin-sized Bible has been found? It was created in 1911 and it was discovered during a a stock take at Leeds Library um, during the lockdown period. I did actually. I, I did spot that uh, that article. It's uh, fascinating that, yeah. um, that, that even in, at that time you could print so finely on a delicate paper and complete the the whole Bible. It's absolutely amazing. It's both the Old and the New Testament. It's gossamer thin paper pages mm. with tethered to a tiny pulpit, as Bibles often were during the Reformation. And it would easily have fitted, the whole thing would easily have fitted into your jacket pocket, um, as it's no bigger than a one-pound coin, despite the fact it's 876 pages. You can imagine how thin the paper must yes. be. Anyway, Gosh. it was found in the Leeds Library Archive and it's thought to have been designed, designed as an eccentric mimic of a 16th century Bible. Now, bizarrely, whilst the book was billed as the smallest Bible in the world when it was printed, this actually isn't the case anymore. Because although other Bibles that claim to be smaller have been created with nanotechnology, 
they actually don't have pages that can be turned. So I don't think that really counts. Not really, no. I mean, that's not really a book, is it? No. Anyway, so Lee's Library have no idea where it's come from and the Bible only resurfaced during this stock take during lockdown. But it enabled them to catalogue a further 3,000 items from their archive. So no doubt more treasures to be found in there. Yeah. Oh, well, there we are. That was time well spent during during the lockdown, wasn't it? Absolutely. Um, but I found uh, a very interesting article. Um, apparently a four-page letter written by Charles Dickens has been unearthed and it's now up for auction. Now, in the letter, um, Dickens accuses a politician of being a blunderhead, which was um, a term at the time for a fool. Now, apparently um, Dickens was doing a tour um, of his Christmas carol and uh, a dinner was given for him on his arrival in Coventry in 1858. Now, the local MP, Sir Robert, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Sir Joseph Paxson, had been persuaded by the mayor not to attend the event and not quite sure why. Then during the toast, the mayor decided to, to lie and suggested the reason why the MP was missing was because he had an important engagement. Well, the four-page letter to Paxton includes a rant by Dickens about this uh, misdemeanor. Now, experts say that Dickens disliked uh, argument and he never dominated conversations, but he obviously had a bit of a temper, as can be seen by this letter. Now, an interesting fact that came out of that, Charles Dickens gave 85 readings of A Christmas Carol over a three-month period in 1858. Wow, that's quite a commitment, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Talk about an author tour. (laughs) Yes. So I was spotted an auction coming up in Boston, which is selling a number of uh, books and writing ephemera. And it appears that there's a letter that was dictated by Princess Elizabeth on Boxing Day 1930, when the future king, uh, future queen, of course, the future queen was just four years old. And she dictated her thanks for a Christmas present and then added her own wobbly Lilibet signature, which is really quite sweet. And it's thought to be the earliest signature of the future queen um, up for sale. So that's that's great. But I wonder, was was that is that in Boston Spa or Boston Mass? I think it's Boston Mass. Ah, right. As you will see by what's actually what else is in the auction. (gasps) Oh, gosh. Because included in the auction, first first edition memoirs by Margaret Thatcher and Mikhail Gorbachev. So that, they'll be interesting. Mm. 14 signed poems by Bob Dylan. No doubt, always a good seller. But the star lot happens to be a baseball bat. Oh, sorry, a baseball. Signed by a little-known politician on a visit to New York just in 2019, which isn't so long ago. But this no. guy, nobody had ever heard of him. He came along to uh, to New York. But his name was Vladimir Zelensky. Aha. So it seems one lucky autograph hunter has struck gold, because no doubt that will fly off. I'm sure that will. That will be a valuable um, yes. item, I must admit. Gosh. Well, for for somebody who's um, ascended with a with an autographed um, a baseball for, autographed by President Zelensky of the Ukraine, there are there are some losers, and unfortunately, some big names have fallen this week in the Times top ten bestseller list. 
For example, Charles Maxey's extraordinarily popular The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse is perilously close to slipping from the list after spending 134 consecutive weeks in the hardback fiction top 10. Also on the way down is our favourite Mr Richard Osman. The Thursday Murder Club is clinging on at number 10 in the paperback fiction list, but The Man Who Died Twice has dropped out of the hardback fiction top 10 entirely after a stunning 32 week run i've got to say it's about time we've got some new books in that top 10 list i happen yeah happen i mean 134 weeks that's just that's a lot isn't just it? ridiculous Oof. you've got your money you've made your money richard osman <laughs> Trouble is, you can never have enough. Yes, obviously. (laughs) Obviously. You're listening to Turning Pages on River Radio with Heather and Julian. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up, we'll be looking at fruit in the world of books. And we'll also be exploring the Jubilee Big Read. But first, I've been speaking to Amber Butchart, whose book, The Fashion Chronicles, Style Stories of History's Best Dressed, will be the basis of her talk at Cook and Festival on May the 16th. Now, the, the Cook and Festival is, as, as, as you most probably know, is in full flow at the moment, and there have been lots of really excellent events so far. Um, one of the talks still to come at the festival, um, as Heather says, is by the funky fashion historian Amber Butchart. And you might remember Amber from her television programme, which, uh, which is called A Stitch in Time, which was on recently. Now, Heather has been talking to uh, the author about her latest book, which is the Fashion Chronicles Style Story of history's best dressed which will be the topic of her talk at the festival so let's listen to heather and amber's conversation I began my career as the buyer for a vintage clothing company. This was a very long time ago now, about 20 years ago. I'd always loved old clothes. Like I grew up, my mum, you know, would would get all our clothes from charity shopping, jumble sales, things like that. So I was always very familiar with, with old clothes, secondhand clothes. As I became a teenager, I really enjoyed scouring charity shops and kind of, you know, fledgling vintage stores in the 90s, hunting out these old pieces. So it was something I'd always been interested in. After I finished university, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so I got a job at my favourite shop, a vintage clothes. And it sort of all uh, grew out of there. After I'd been there a couple of years, I went back to university to do a master's in the history of fashion and started doing my own bits and pieces of writing and research. And it just kind of grew out of there. I'm really interested in the stories that clothes can tell us and how we can understand history through the clothes that we wear now and the clothes that we wore in the past. That's a fantastic angle at looking at history because you're absolutely right. Depending on the clothing, it depends on how active you can be. Exactly. We can really learn an awful lot, I think. And and it's quite a visceral connection to the past because, you know, there's that very overused quote, the past is a foreign country. But something that we all still do is wear clothes. Mm. So I think we kind of already all have a relationship to to the sort of physicality of that, basically, yes. that can help us to understand history a bit better. So tell me about your talk then at the Cook and Festival. You're looking at your last book, focusing on 100 different characters and how they use fashion to 
to build their brand. My last book was the Fashion Chronicles Style Stories of History's Best Dressed. And it's sort of a manifesto for fashion history in a way, because I really wanted to get across the idea. You know, lots of people think that clothing is is superficial, that it's somehow not important. And I just wanted to challenge that. And I also wanted to use that best dressed trope and really kind of turn that on its head because it's a trope that can be quite toxic. You know, who wore it better? Who's the best dressed? It's an idea that's often used especially to pit women against each other. And I really wanted to take that and kind of flip it and just say, look, actually, throughout history, the way that people dress and have chosen to dress has been incredibly important for the messages that they want to share. So it sort of illustrates how clothing intersects with culture, with politics and art, and how clothing can act as a portal to the past as well. So there's a range of different people. I go right back to the Ice Age uh, and then bring it right forward to some very contemporary models and very contemporary figures like Beyonce and Michelle Obama. Those are the people that feature in the book. I'm obviously not going to cover all 100. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) be there forever. But I think I have quite a good selection. It's maybe around 10, I think, that I'll be covering. I talk at Cookham. So what's your favourite character that you're talking about? Well... There are a few that are really interesting, I think, covering lots of different areas. I don't want to give too much away, but I'll be talking a bit about the Emperor Augustus, looking a little bit at Roman history and the toga. I'll also be looking a bit at Joan of Arc as well and how ideas around gender and dress were so sort of essential to what happened to her. I'll be looking a little bit at our relationship, Britain's relationship with India, our colonial past and how that can be told through the history of cotton and things like that. I've also got some figures like Marie Antoinette, very well Mm -hmm. known for her love of fashion. But one of my favourites, I think, is a figure called egg-fed girl. (laughs) So this is remains that were found dated to around 1370 BC. So incredibly, incredibly old. She was discovered in 1921 in Denmark in an Mm -hmm. oak log coffin that was found in a burial mound. And there were just some very interesting scientific tests and analysis that were done to the clothing that she was buried with. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about, really thinking about how science there can help us to understand history, but how clothing is absolutely central to that analysis as well. I had a friend who was a character in an Iron Age village and they were given the same clothes to wear. And she was saying that all the girls wore them differently. Some of them would sort of have the belt really tight and their skirt relatively short short and she said it was really interesting looking at how different everybody wore them depending on their character that's really fascinating and you actually you get that a lot throughout history with groups of people who ostensibly have to wear the same thing like if we think about sailors on board ships in the 19th century quite often sailors Obviously, they're in uniform, but many of them would make these little tweaks to what they were wearing just to individualise it. And it's that kind of tension, I think, between 
uniform you know being the ultimate conformity and wanting to have some kind of individual expression I think that's really really interesting yeah so looking back over history what's your favorite period it's really difficult to answer that I have a few favorite periods I really like late 18th century menswear from I guess around the 1770s there were a group of men in Britain at that time it's slightly just before Beau Brummel Beau Brummel kind of emerges actually Beau Brummel's in my book (laughs) find out more about him then he kind of emerges in the early uh, 19th century and so this is just before that so actually Beau Brummel was almost a kind of reaction to these men in the 1770s 1780s who became known as the macaronis for their very very flamboyant style of dress they would often and bring back very rich, ornate, brocaded textiles from taking the grand tour around Europe. They'd wear these very towering wigs. They were really heavily satirised in like the contemporary press. But I just think they look fantastic with their ridiculously oversized knee buckles, breeches, silk stockings, all of that. So I love that. I also am a big fan of the 1920s as well. So I just, I kind of like dipping in and out of lots of different eras in terms of style, for sure. Vintage shopping now is such an important part of our youngsters' way of being, isn't it? Definitely. Uh, the second-hand market, the sort of resale market, is set to overtake sales uh, in fast fashion within a few years, which in some ways is fantastic because, you know, we shop too much. There are too many clothes being produced. This is, of course, a huge problem, a huge issue. Many clothes end up in landfill. Many clothes, even if we think we're doing something good by donating them to charity, they might often become global commodities again. And they can actually impact places really far away. I would always encourage people to shop secondhand as much as possible. Also, I think it's good looking back at how we used to dress for inspiration. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. There's so much inspiration out there, whether you're walking around an art gallery and looking at portraits of people from the past or whether you're looking through old magazines, looking at something from the more recent past. You know, there is so much inspiration out there. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no such thing as a new idea, is there? No, exactly. It sounds fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Really looking forward to listening to you at the festival. Thank you very much indeed. And we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Heather. See you (laughs) soon. And just to uh, just remind you, Amber will be talking um, about her book, amongst other things, on Monday, May 16th, uh, and it will be at 7.30 in the evening. And tickets are still available and may be purchased at the festival website, which is www.cookhamfestival.co.uk. And it sounds a really fascinating talk, actually, so I certainly will be there. You are listening to Turning Pages on River Radio and it's never been easier now as we're broadcast on DAB. Every week there's a host of great programmes you can listen to, both music and talk focused. Turning Pages is your very own book programme and it's on Wednesday between 11 and 12 and repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3. And if you want to catch up on any of our past programmes you've missed, then you can listen again directly from our website, www.river.radio. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. Coming up, we'll be exploring the world of fruit in books. But first, I joined Jeanette Kemp to discuss the books on the Jubilee Big Read. So, Julian, what can you tell us all about the Big Read? 
Well, the Jubilee Big Read is is basically a reading for pleasure campaign, uh, celebrating books from across the Commonwealth to coincide with Majesty the Queen's Jubilee. And anything that gets people reading, especially reading books that they um, normally wouldn't consider, I think is a very good idea. Um, now, 10 books have been chosen for each decade of the Queen's reign. Now, the one thing that we, we, we need to acknowledge is that 70 books over 70 years isn't that many. So it, it's, it's obvious that many favourites that uh, you and I might think uh, should be on the list will be missing. <clears throat> now, authors have been chosen from across the Commonwealth, which spans 31 countries and six continents. Now, I haven't heard of many of them, and I'm sure I'm not alone. However, that should not stop us from delving into the deep treasure trove of authors we have yet to discover. And of course, once a list has been made, it's so easy to go and pick holes in it and say, mm, that's not on it. Mm, I would have put that on it. Mm, my favourite's missing. So let's listen to Heather and Jeanette talking about this very subject, the list. Jeanette, hi. It's great to chat with you again today. We're going to talk about the big jubilee, big read that has been in all the papers. First of all, what do you think of it? I think it's brilliant. When I first looked at it, I thought, oh, my goodness, when I'm looking here at 1952 to 1961, my goodness, I haven't read any of those. What am I I doing? What have I been reading? It was a bit frightening, actually. I was surprised how many books I hadn't read or hadn't even heard of absolutely definitely but then I suppose it's a mirror of your life but then when I gradually started looking down and we got to sort of the 1980s and 1990s all of a sudden there was a whole load of ones that I'd read for example in the 1972 to 1981 list it's got the Thornbirds. I mean we all read the Thornbirds, didn't we absolutely it was on the television wasn't it and that was just a, that everybody was reading that book I, mean, it get, I went sort of went down memory lane and so it really is a kind of the story of our lives where the books were so it's, yeah. so I started to enjoy it and I started to look I guess you read that too did you everybody I, was reading that book I was quite surprised it was on because yeah. it's a very commercial book I suppose absolutely yes and there seems to be some quite high literary ones and then there's also very commercial ones very and true there is isn't there and but there's some great contemporary ones as well like so for example can I tell you my favorite section Oh, so my yes, favourite section is 1992 to 2001. Uh, so it's got White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Yes. Well, she happens to be one of my favourite, favourite authors. I absolutely love her books. And of course, that's set in London, isn't it? And all the fantastic things. Oh, I, to her. They've got The English Patient. Actually, actually, I love that book and film. A Life of Pi. Everyone was reading that at one point. Weren't they? God of Small Things. So that's a, it's a really lovely collection and a fine balance. If you read that one, a fine balance, that is amazing. Well, I would really recommend that. It's absolutely beautifully written. Great big chunky book. You need a lot of time, a long holiday, but beautiful book all about India and, and the poverty and just the beauty of the place as well. I've got to say the God of Small Things is the yeah. only book I've not finished. Because normally um, I start a book and then I feel I've got to finish it. And I think now I've I've got over that. I I feel there are too many books to do that anymore. But back in whenever it was, 1997, I was still in that mood. If I start something, I've got to finish. And I couldn't finish The God of Small Things by Andrati Roy because I just just didn't get on with it. I should try it again, actually. I bet I'll read (laughs) it. 
But I do remember, so obviously I was also in that mode of I must finish it. And I think I probably still am, actually. I still haven't lost that. I need probably need to think about that. I also found that book quite difficult, although beautiful, also also very difficult. And uh, I battled on, consequently didn't enjoy towards the end of it. It was quite hard going, wasn't it? Hard going book. But it's interesting. It's on this list. It's very well respected, that book. It's definitely worth a read. So won the book a prize. And in fact, Andrati Roy, who who I've met quite a few times... It was such a big book that she stopped writing novels. She found that the pressure of writing another novel was just too great. So she moved over to nonfiction and she's quite an icon of activism. So she writes really great books now, but mostly nonfiction. I think breaking it down into decades just shows you when you read most Definitely, yes, I, if, it, exactly. When you get on to the 2002 to 2011s, again, they've got a great selection. They've got Small Island by uh, Andrea Levy. I mean, that's yes. a brilliant book of racism um, in the UK after the Second World War. And they've got Girl, Woman, Other, which yes. is also a real statement for this time and age, isn't there? There's been lots about Black Lives Matters and, and portraying women and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's interesting how it, it does, they say, don't they? Does life mirror art or does art mirror life and this book list is a classic example of it does mirror life i thought it was quite interesting that that book was out in 2019 but i still feel it's a very current book now it's as if like the pandemic really sort of stopped life that book's had a a longevity hasn't it that book i loved it too really liked it i love the way it was split split down into all those sections and all the different experiences and and things that i don't know never really crossed my mind of different experiences that these women had had. I thought it was phenomenal. I really liked it. So looking at the the list, I also thought there were quite a number of favourite books that were missing. What would you say? Things like, uh, well, okay, the big one, J.K. Rowling. Yes, no J.K. Rowling. Can you have a list of seminal works that doesn't include J.K. Rowling because I think she's been so influential and positively influential and the book was such a big bestseller <laughs> phenomenal bestseller it's absolutely never, I mean it just changed the pace of children's literature in a way I guess didn't oh, it really it opened up another door opened a magical door and not just children's literature I mean adults were reading it yeah. as well and you've never seen that people always talk about you know how do you make a book as successful as J.K. Rowling and actually the answer is we don't it was just one of those things where everything came together at the right time in the right way I guess the people who got it together were they were literally thinking adult 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 weren't they because when you look through no YA on here either I want to know why isn't flowers in the attic on this list (laughs) do you remember those somebody (laughs) Andrews who are my first grown-up books you see so late 70s early 80s flowers in the attic so because I think when I see the thornbirds I think that's kind of in the same category Uh, dare I say yeah Yeah. (laughs) so they were the YA then I think flowers in the attic it's a very exciting book (laughs) but I think when you've only got 70 to choose from and there are so many hundreds of thousands of books that are printed it would be a very difficult job and I think one of the fun things actually is deciding what our own 70 books would be that would be a really interesting experience wouldn't it actually think about where you were what you were doing because one thing i do really like about this list is obviously they're acknowledging the commonwealth aren't they it's really inclusive there's a lot of great indian books in there which i love reading about and sierra leone i mean for example the memory of love 
and Metafauna. I absolutely love that book. It's about war in Sierra Leone and it's a love story. If you haven't read it, I really recommend it. It's absolutely beautifully written. So it's nice that, that you know, all these different parts of, of the Commonwealth have all come together. So I like that. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Margaret Atwood, they've got The Handmaiden's Tale on there, none of the others, but maybe that maybe that's the one that made her. So, you know, the Kazshiguru, I mean, you could probably picked one a decade from him true um, that is very true although i have to say the remains of the day just it does stay up there i think it does it's super it's like a perfect slice of cake there yeah. isn't anything wrong with that book and it's the essence of time isn't it you'll never get back absolutely beautifully written i love that author mural sparks as girls of slender means yes chosen. and i just said that the prime of miss jane Brodie. now i can see in the 2000s to 2011s we've got of course we were all hit with uh hillary mantel on those massive big bricks that she wrote about at tudor times this so, one so i will have nothing said about them <laughs> well funnily enough i was telling you i never even attempted them uh, i just the whole the whole tudorness of them and the chunkiness of them like oh. i was just terrified of them and never and never opened the door they're so luxurious <laughs> So you read the descriptions of the fabric and the people. You feel you're there. You're time travelling. They're fantastic. Not at all daunting once you once okay. you start them. They take you away because the story is great. And you know the story, of course. You just follow the, the, the story along and you're rooting for Thomas Cromwell. Honestly, you really want him to win. He's fun, fantastic uh, character. Maybe I should revisit them, actually. As you I say, when you look so. back through the years, sometimes I do think it is when you read a book definitely sometimes close it up and then go back again I don't know why that is whatever you're doing in your life whatever age you are sometimes you just come back to it and you enjoy it or maybe you don't enjoy it when you did before so it's interesting I think where you're going and what you're doing at the time can really affect your enjoyment of a book definitely yeah I think we're different people every every year every day we're a different person aren't we Um, and that does reflect what we enjoy so looking at that whole list that whole sort of 70 books is there a favorite there there you. is, because one of my, there's several favourites, but oh, you're only, favorite. only allowed one. Okay, well, it's just got to be Half of a Yellow Sun ah. by Ginnamunda. I think she is utterly amazing. Good. Set in Nigeria, the Briafra yeah. war times, and it's lovely because it's got that lovely university feel. They're university lecturers, so it's got that academic side to it, but it's also got the, the war side to it as well, and the travelling through the country. And I've, I've always been blown away by that book. And when I first looked at the list, printed it out, I thought, oh, it's got half of a yellow sun. How about you? You're only allowed one, two. What's oh, your- gosh. So I'm going to say The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch. I'm only saying that because her writing's fantastic. Mm, and just geez. recently, there's been a new biography of Iris Murdoch, which reminded me all about her work. And so I went back and read it. So, uh, yeah, I think that would that's, that would be my pick. You should say that. I've only, in the last five years, discovered Iris Murdoch. Uh, a book came up in our book group. Can't remember which one it was now, and we read it, and it was absolutely stunning. Isn't she yes. a fantastic writer? And the Sea, the Sea is one of those books which are sitting in my bookcase waiting. The sea, uh, the- so, which that you didn't know about is now on the list, and that you're thinking, oh, I'm going to have a go. Oh, okay, a book that I hadn't really even heard of. Well, funnily yeah. enough, I had a couple of friends over last night. They're both really good, love reading, and we had to, we sit and had a look at this. And uh, my friend said, oh, yes, A House for Mr. Biswas. She said, oh, that's absolutely brilliant. Have you not read any of his? It's, it's Trinidad, isn't it? Set in yes. Tobago. So, yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, so I'm quite intrigued. I've never read any of his novels. So that's been a new one for me. That's right at the top of the list, actually, in the 1950s. 
How about you? Have you got one that's jumped out to you? Well, one of the very early ones that I've Mm. picked is To Sew With Love by E.R. Braithwaite. Mm. And I was reading something else the other day and it was saying how influential that book was. And I'd never heard of it. And I don't know anything about E.R. Braithwaite. Guyana author. It was published in 1959. It's obviously carried... So it's obviously still good, but interesting that they're very they're the very first ones. What else? I have a confession to re- to make. I've never read The Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess. Clockwork Orange, I have confession too. Nor me, nor me. And that's a seminal work. And so I think I'm going to read that. Going back to that, to Sir with Love, it kind of oh, reminds yeah. me of a James Bond title. There's no Ian Fleming on. That's interesting, that's isn't it? Right. Yes. So there's because a Don Le Carre, isn't there? We've grown, um, yes, there is, but we've yeah. grown up, surely, with James Bond. Do we know the James Bond through the films more than we do the books? It's interesting, I'd like to point out. It's um, Tim Winton, Cloud Street. Now, he's a great author, and right. I do know that he's, he also wrote Dirt Music, which is a book group, a book I read for my book group, and it's a great novelist. I'd really recommend that Cloud Street as well. Absolutely brilliant writer. And I'd never really discovered him until we discovered him in the book group. And I know now that he is on their curriculum now. It's a, oh. He's a great read. I'll tell you what's not on here, which I thought was absolutely amazing, was Hamnet. That won the oh, Women's Prize by yes. Maggie O'Farrell just yes. last year, I think it was. I mean, that was a superb book, absolutely beautifully written. But I think that that had our English history about one of the most famous playwrights and his life and, and what happened then and, and just the, the way it was written. Because I think that book will go down in history. She's a great writer. But there's just so many, isn't there? I think if it just encourages us to read a bit more widely yeah. or just to go back to some really big books of, of a different era, then I yeah. think that's well worth Absolutely. I mean, I have enjoyed looking at it. And as we've said from this conversation, it's interesting, your take on it as well. There's certainly some books I'm going to go back to and, and yeah. pull, them out, pull them out of the library, get them out. And as we always say, this isn't this a classic example that, yes, we want to know what's on the women's shortlist that's just come out. Yes, we want to know what's being published this summer when we go away. But do you know what? What about all the other gorgeous, amazing stuff yes. that's sitting there in our libraries and bookshelves and on our bookshops that's just at our fingertips? And yeah. so these lists are great, aren't they? These lists are great for reminding us we can just go back and there's so much stuff out there. It's just sitting there waiting to be read. Definitely. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. That is brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Right, there's a whole pile of books that were recommended in this section. So they include Small Island by Andrea Levy, published by Tinder. Gil, uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo, which is published by Penguin Books. J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, published by Bloomsbury. Flowers in the Attic by Virginia Andrews, published by HarperCollins. Memory of Love, a Manata Former, published by Bloomsbury. Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguri, um, published by Faber and Faber. Mural Sparks, Prime of Miss Jane Brodie, Jean Brodie, sorry, published by Penguin Classics. And Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, published by Fourth Estate. House of Mr Biswas by V.S. Naipaul, published by Picador. Half a Yellow Sun by Chimananda Ngozi Adichie, published by Penguin. To Sew with Love by E.R. Braithwaite published by Vintage Classics. Uh, Clockwork Orange by Anthony Burgess, which is also published by Penguin Books. And Tim Winton, Cloud Street, published by Picador. 
And finally, Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, published by Tinder Press. And they're all worth a, a read. So do take a look at the full list of the Jubilee Big Read. It's to encourage you to read. So um, hopefully it introduces you to some great new books. Mm. Right. Today we are carrying on in the programme and talking about fruit in books. And it's surprising how many books either mention fruit in their title or use fruit as an important element of the prose. Did you think that? Uh, yes, yes, I did. I did. Uh, well, in fact, <laughs> one we've just talked about, Clockwork Orange. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is quite staggering, actually, the number of uh, uh, books with, with, uh, with fruit in it or particular fruit or you know, a reference to it. Yeah. I, spot, I spotted a hefty 850-page tome. It's called The Duchess of Melfi's Apricots and Other Literary Fruits by Robert Poulter. And that, basically, he's got a job of a lifetime, I think, because it itemises and discusses countless fruit scenes in stories, in poems, songs, films and other literary vehicles where fruit has been used to express the entire gamut of human experience references of course occur in the bible you've got eve and Mm -hmm. the apple though i was told yesterday it was a banana but i'm not sure about that anyway modern and contemporary literature and everywhere in between but first we're going to start this section with a short poem by mike burton our resident poet the casual poet all about raspberries raspberry memories I ate a fresh raspberry this morning and suddenly I was a little boy picking fruit at the back of our garden as a fearless Lone Ranger cowboy. It's funny how things can remind you of when you were very small. Cast your memory back from the reel of today. I was seven and three quarters and so tall. Those days feel better in reflection, somehow cosy and warm all day long. No worries or responsibilities apart from homework and what I got wrong. Summers were longer and there was more snow. Long trousers were still to come. I had six months pocket money for sherbet dips and maybe some pink bubble gum. But growing up happened so quickly and now I'm an ageing man. Well, still a man eating raspberries, remembering just what I can. Aww. So I'm going to do the first book, if that's all right, Julian. That's perfectly all right, yes. My choice is A Breath of Fresh Air from the Past, and it's Driving Over Lemons by Chris Stewart. Do you remember reading that? Did you ever read it? I didn't read it, no. So it was, there seems to be a time when it was all the rage to find a new life by buying something ramshackled in the European sunshine and discover a new life. And there were loads of books very much in this mould. And I suppose Peter Mayle started the trend. Um, Mm. And he started, he wrote, of course, A Year in Provence, which is still as charming as ever. And instead of France here, we have Chris Stewart discovering life on a Spanish mountain farm. So driving over lemons is very funny. It tells us a story of how he bought a peasant farm on the wrong side of the river with its previous owner still resident and it became an international bestseller. Now, you might know the name Chris Stewart because he was the original drummer in Genesis. He actually played on their first album. 
and he prepared for life on his Spanish mountain farm with jobs of, I'm going to describe them as doubtful relevance. <laughs> he joined a circus. He learned how to shear sheep. At least that was useful, I suppose. He went to China to complete the, to write the rough guide. And he gained a pilot's license in Los Angeles. And he also completed a course in French cooking. He wrote a book, Three Ways to Capsize a Boat, which fills in his lost years as a yacht skipper in the Greek islands. Anyway, let's start by listening to an excerpt from Driving Over Lemons Now, read by Julian. ...by Chris Stewart. El Valero. Well, this is no good. I don't want to live here, I said as we drove along yet another tarmac road behind a row of whitewashed houses. I want to live in the mountains, for heaven's sake, not in the suburbs of some town in a valley. Shut up and keep driving, ordered Georgina, the woman sitting beside me. She lit another cigarette of strong black tobacco and bathed me in a cloud of smoke. I'd only met Georgina that afternoon, but it hadn't taken her long to put me in my place. She was a confident young Englishwoman with a peculiarly Mediterranean way of seeming at ease with her surroundings. For the last ten years she'd been living in the Alpujarras, the foothills of the Sierra Nevada, south of Granada, and she'd carved out a niche for herself, acting as an intermediary between the farmers who wanted to sell their cortijos in the hills and move to town, and the foreigners who wanted to buy them. It was a tough job, but no one who saw her ironing out the deals with the coarsest peasants or arguing water rights with the most stubborn bureaucrat could doubt she was the woman for it. If she had a weakness at all, it was in her refusal to suffer fools and ditherers. Do you bully all your clients like this? I protested. No, just you. Left here. Obediently, I turned the wheel and we shrugged off the last houses of Orgiva, the market town where I had been adopted by my agent. We bumped onto a dirt road and headed downhill towards the river. Where are the mountains? I whined. Georgina ignored me and looked at the groves of oranges and olives on either side of the track. There were white houses covered in the scrags of last year's vines and decked with bright geraniums and bourgainvilliers. Mules were ploughing, boiler-suited growers were bent bum-up amid perfect lines of vegetables. A palm tree shaded the road where hens were swimming in the dust. Dogs slept in the road in the shade, cats slept in the road in the sun. The creature with the lowest priority on the road was the car. I stopped and backed up a bit to go round a lemon. Drive over lemons, ordered Georgina. There were, it was true, a hell of a lot of lemons. They hurtled past, borne on a stream of water that bubbled nearby. In places the road was a mat of mashed fruit, and the earth beneath the trees was bright with fallen yellow orbs. I remembered a half-forgotten snatch of a song, something about a lovelorn gypsy throwing lemons into the great river until it turned to gold. The lemons, the creatures and the flowers warmed my heart a little. We drove on through a flat plain quilted with cabbages and beans, at the end of which loomed a little mountain. After dipping a banana grove, we turned sharp right up a steep hill with deep cuttings in the red rock. This looks more like it. Just wait, we're not there yet. Up and up we went, bend after bend, the river valley spread below us like an aerial print. On through a gorge and suddenly we burst into a new valley. The plain we had crossed disappeared utterly, hidden from sight by the mass of mountain and drowned by the roaring of the river in the gorge below. 
Far below, beside the river, I caught sight of a little farm in a horseshoe-shaped valley, a derelict house on a cactus-covered crag, surrounded by unkempt fields and terraces of ancient olive trees. La Herradora, Georgina announced. What about that, then? Well, it's a nice to dream, but the pittance we've got to spend is hardly going to buy us a place like that. With the money you've got to spend, you could afford that place and have some left over to do it up. Well, it sounds like the sort of place that I might like. So I think Chris Stewart writes a little bit like Bill Bryson. You know his note, uh, Notes from a Small Island, which uh, is absolutely brilliant. And uh, the other day it was being broadcast on BBC Radio 4 Extra. And I suppose that reminded me. Um, so when we were going to do this topic, it just decided I've just got to uh, talk about this book. Um, so I read it and enjoyed it when it was first published way back. And when I was researching for the section, I did spot that he's just updated the book and there's actually a special anniversary edition which has just been published. And this time a new chapter has been added called 25 Years On. So I need to obviously read read it again to find out what happened over the intervening 25 years. So uh, did you see the uh, that lovely programme with Richard E. Grant called Right Around the World on BBC Radio 4, Jules? No. It was basically, it was the job I want. It was going mm-hmm. around the world, exploring sites of famous books and reading passages from the book. I mean, what could be nicer? Anyway, Very true. it was great fun. And this book was also recommended. So Driving Over Lemons was also recommended <coughs> oh, uh, when he went over... I have to Spain. So what have you got for us? Well, um, the book I've chosen uh, this week, a um, little bit like yours, is is, is uh, a few years old now, in fact, 13 years old. Uh, it was first published in 2008, but the subject is ageless, and the subject is the banana. And the book is Banana, The Fate of the Fruit That Changed the World, and it was written by Dan Kippel. Now, the bananas is a fruit which is seen every day on the shop shelves and is eaten by the thousands, either on its own or sliced onto breakfast cereal or topping a yoghurt or landing up in a banoffee pie. Now, in fact, per capita, annual consumption here in the UK is around, would you believe, 14.3 kilograms of bananas, which ranks uh, the UK as the 43rd highest consuming nation in a list of 146 countries. And if my research is correct, we um, eat roughly two kilos more than the Americans do, which is interesting because the life and circumstance of the banana is inextricably linked to American interests and up until 1970 to one dominant company, the United Fruit Company. I would say that's a a huge amount of bananas per capita, isn't it? It certainly is. I mean, mean, it is, yeah. And and, and to think that we're we're 43rd. Yes. Crikey knows how much further up the scale. (laughs) Who's number one? I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I dread to think how many bananas they eat. (laughs) Unless the poor old banana producing countries, you know, when they've got a surplus, oh, crikey, we've got to eat the bananas to keep the price up. (laughs) Now, um, the... Sorry, but I was going to say that whilst we eat a couple more um, kilos than the Americans, uh, interesting, the Americans eat more bananas than they do um, apples and oranges combined, which is also an interesting fact because the latter two fruits are indeed homegrown. But 
But for its ubiquity, the mystery still surrounds a banana because no one knows for certain how it evolved or where it originally came from. And bananas are grown in South America, in the Caribbean and Southeast Asia and, uh, and the Indian subcontinent. And there are hundreds of varieties. In fact, would you believe this, there are 300 types of banana classified in India alone. Just just one country, Mm. and that's 300 types of Indian banana. However, for all of that, what we uh, buy and uh, eat mostly is just one type, which is called the Cavendish. And that replaced the former market leader, which was called the Grosse Michel, or the Big Mike, as it used to be known, after it succumbed to the Panama disease, which nearly wiped it out. Now, though the Cavendish um, was immune to the Panama disease, its future, too, is a bit of a concern because the banana, I don't know if you know this, is a seedless fruit with a unique reproduction system. It means that the banana is a genetic duplicate of the next. And therefore, because of that, it is susceptible to blight such as the Panama disease. Yes, I'm sure I read somewhere that there's a sort of like a a COVID-19 type um epidemic in the banana um plantations yeah, at the yeah. moment. Yes, I mean it really is a, a, of a concern. Yeah. And particularly I think if you're just marketing one type of banana, because you know, when you see sometimes the red banana and other bananas in the shops, I mean I've never bought one because I thought, I wonder what that tastes like, yes. which is really rather silly. Yes. Yeah. Um, but what I like about this book, um, apart from the the natural history of the banana, um is its history and Heather. Mm-hmm. Did you know, and you do because you found out yesterday, well, that the was, apple that Adam Eve bought, uh, it was in fact a banana. That's where uh, I heard that bit of fact yeah, from. Yes. Uh, uh, <laughs> I knew I heard it recently. <laughs> you heard it from me. <laughs> now, it, and apart from all of that, the author, and this is, this is where it becomes really interesting for me, I think he takes us into the murky world of the United Fruit Company with its long reach and history of corruption and subversion, and its tentacles were reaching out in all directions, and so much so that it was, it was nicknamed El Pulpo, the octopus. Now, the company was formed in 1899 after a merger of the Boston Fruit Company and a banana trading outfit owned by a man by the name of Minor C. Keith. Uh, and it flourished in the early and mid 20th century, where it controlled vast territories um, throughout Central America, along the Caribbean coast of Colombia and the West Indies. Now, though it competed with the Standard Fruit Company, which is now known as the Dole Fruit Company, um, it maintained a virtual monopoly in places such as Costa Rica, Honduras and Guatemala. And so much so, they became known as the Banana Republics. And this wow. is where the Banana Republic comes from. And now, in, so um, in building the, the the fruit empire, the United Fruit Company, I mean, it really is a fascinating history. Uh, it, it, it thought nothing of bribery uh, and in some cases outright subversion to get what it wanted. And um, it regularly bribed presidents of the republics to get what it wanted. And if it couldn't get what it wanted, it happily decided for that government to be, um, uh, who opposed them, to be toppled in a coup. Um, now, the company's reach and involvement in some countries extended to it being granted, for example, the management, can you believe, the management of Guatemala's 
Postal Service in 1901. And then by 1913, it had formed the Tropical Radio and Telegraph Company, which effectively controlled the airways and all communications in Guatemala. Um, It was really, really quite staggering. Now, naturally, (laughs) United Fruit Company's business and political shenanigans were probably not widely known to the general public. However, it was mindful of keeping the public on its side, not least for them to continue to buy and eat its bananas. And it, like large corporations of the day and even now spent well on advertising and in 1945 sorry in 44 in fact it commissioned the cartoonistic brown who was the creator of hagar the horrible strip cartoon to create a cartoon character based on the populist portuguese singer and movie star carmen miranda right. and thus miss chiquita banana was born complete with the fruit basket hat favored by carmen as she warbled i like it very much <laughs> A marvellous rendition, thank you. Well, thank you. I I forgot to put my hat on, though. Now, as with all great empires, they come to an end, and that also happened to the United Fruit Company when it effectively ceased to exist after it merged with the corporate raider Eli M. Black's company, um, which is called AMK, creating United Brands Company. Um, Now, that also came to grief when, because of Black's mismanagement of the company, it saw him throw himself out of the window of his 44th floor office in the Pan Am building. Oh dear. Yes, not pleasant. And today the company is known as Chiquita Brands International. Now, Banana, the fate of the fruit that changed the world is is really very interesting story, not just for the fruit, but the passion and the power it provoked. Um, and 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 the the fact, uh, in the face of it, a respectable company um, that indulged in less than respectable practices, and not only on its own, but also in concert with the American government, which behaved disgracefully in sovereign Guatemala's affairs. I mean, it was really quite astonishing. Yeah. But the book, um, it, it's still available. So that's Banana, The Fate of the Fruit to the Change the World. Uh, and it's published by Plume Books, which is an imprint of Penguin Books. So if you find it interesting or it sounds interesting, nip off to your local bookshop and get a copy or order a copy. So it sounds as much as a business biography as it does a sort of like a fruit biography there. Yes, it, it is. I mean, it's interesting because it, it starts off in, in great detail about the fruit and, and, and about fruit groves and this, that and the other. And then suddenly this well yes this octopus el pupo comes into in in interview and and it is how this company and this fruit was so um intertwined um and it and and just you know when you think you think oh oil must have you know really important and could um uh, cause companies to also but this was a banana yes Yes. This was a piece of fruit. Yeah. Um, but there was a company out there that was determined that it was going to govern um, uh, in, in, in various parts of the world, if it could, all through one piece of fruit. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Right. Now, to move on, I've got one more book, which we'll just very quickly do. And I'm just mm-hmm. going to start off with a piece of music. Oh. So, Eleanor Fargen is the author of her our next book, and she also wrote Morning Has Broken, which we've just listened ah. to a very small amount by Cat Stevens. So, I was mentioning over breakfast that I would be talking about this book, 
and the book's called Martin Pippin in the Apple Orchard by Ellen Fargen. And everyone around the breakfast table, we've got some friends staying with us at the moment. They all knew something about Ellen Fargen. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> one, one friend of ours, Sue, recited a lovely poem called The Wedding Gown by Ellen Fargen. She just knew all the words. It was just fantastic. And then, of course, I learned that uh, she wrote uh, Morning Has Broken. So it's a lovely, clever fairy tale. And um, it's about a wandering minstrel and six young milkmaids, sworn virgins and man-haters all. And it was something about the names of the young milkmaids that struck a something, a chord deep within me, probably a deep memory or something, because the names are Joan, Joyce, Jennifer, Jessica, Jane and Jocelyn. And uh, the forward to the American edition just talks about how you get transported into a world of sunlight and of gay inconsequence um, and living in a in a, a rare world um, until obviously all too soon your reading is done. So it's a really utterly charming book. And we've got a, a reading that Julian's done for us. So let's listen to that. Introduction to Martin Pippin in the Apple Orchard In Adversane in Sussex they still sing the song of the Spring Green Lady. Any fine evening in the streets or in the meadows you may come upon a band of children playing the old game that is their heritage, though few of them know its origin or even that it had one. It is to them as the daisies in the grass and the stars in the sky. Of these things and such as these they ask no questions. But there you will still find one child who takes the part of the emperor's daughter, and another who is the wandering singer. And the remaining group, there should be no more than six in it, becomes the spring green lady, the rose white lady, the apple gold lady of the three parts of the game. Often there are more than six in the group, for the true number of the damsels who guarded their fellow in her prison is as forgotten as their names. Jocelyn, Jane and Jennifer... Jessica, Joyce and Joan, forgotten too the name of Gillian, the lovely captive. And the wandering singer is to them but the wandering singer, not Martin Pippin the minstrel. Worse and worse, he is even presumed to be the captive sweetheart who wheedles the flower, the ring and the prison key out of the strict virgins for his own purposes and flies with her at last in his shallop across the sea, to live with her happily ever after. But this is a fallacy. Martin Pippin never wheedled anything out of anybody for his own purposes. In fact, he had none of his own. On this adventure, he was about the business of young Robin Roo. There are further discrepancies. The emperor's daughter was not an emperor's daughter, but a farmer's. Nor was the sea the sea, but a duck pond, nor... But let us begin... Absolutely. Um, So, as you can see, it's really charming. It's a story about, well, it's a bit about uh, love and uh, and regret, I think. Um, And the question is, who is Gillian? Why is she locked in the well house? And is she lovesick for a man she can't have or hiding for a love that she does not want? So, thoroughly recommended. And quickly, before we close, because it's that time again, I don't know how the hour creeps up on us, 
<coughs> excuse me, uh, I'd like to say the Cook and Festival is in full swing. So take a look at the website for a full description of all the events and to book online. We heard earlier we've got Amber Butchart on uh, Monday the 16th and all tickets can be booked online cookandfestival.co.uk and there's plenty more to come. I've got to say I've already had a thoroughly uh, great time of it so far even though it only just started on Friday and a special shout out and recommendation because on Friday evening the 20th of May River Radio's very own Mike Burden and others are taking part in a special poetry and prose evening and that's going to be great fun. Right, uh, books we're recommending today then are Amber Burchard, The Threshing Chronicles, published by Mitchell Beasley. Uh, the Duchess of Malfi, um, uh, Apricots and Others Literary Fruits by Robert Poulter, which is published by the University of South Carolina Press. Driving Over Lemons, An Optimist in Andalucia, special anniversary edition published by Sort of Books. Banana, The Fate of the Fruits That Changed the World by Dan Keppel, published by Plume Books. And Martin Pippin in the Apple Orchard by Eleanor Fargen, published by Penguin. Thank you so much for listening to Turning Pages on River to Radio today. Really hope you've enjoyed the programme. Do tell all your friends if you have. And we're always interested in receiving your recommendations of books to share. So do email me on heather at river.radio to tell us your news. So listening to River Radio and Turning Pages has now never been easier. So don't forget, you can always listen again directly from our website, uh, www.river.radio. And Turning Pages is available as a podcast. You just search for Turning Pages on River Radio Podcast. So thank you for joining us. Next week, we'll be joined by Tilly Brogan with her book, book choice, This Is Going to Hurt, by Amanda Kay. Goodbye. Hi. Paperback writer. Writer. <laughs>